Section sixty of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Two, by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. We got into a boat to cross over to Blackfriars, and as we moved along the Thames, I talked to him of a little volume which, altogether unknown to him, was advertised to be published in a few days under the title of Johnsoniano or bon mot of dr johnson Footnote. in a new edition of this book which was published in the following year the editor states that either through hurry or inattention some obscene jests had unluckily found a place in the first edition End of footnote. johnson sir it is a mighty impudent thing boswell pray sir could you have no redress if you were to prosecute a publisher for bringing out under your name what you never said and describing to you dull stupid nonsense or making you swear profanely as many ignorant relators of your bon mot do johnson no sir there will always be some truth mixed with the falsehood and how can it be ascertained how much is true and how much is false besides sir what damages would a jury give me for having been represented as swearing boswell i think so you should at least disavow such a publication because the world and posterity might with much plausible foundation say here is a volume which was publicly advertised and came out in dr johnson's own time and by his silence was admitted by him to be genuine Johnson. I shall give myself no trouble about the matter. He was perhaps above suffering from such spurious publications, but I could not help thinking that many men would be much injured in their reputation by having absurd and vicious sayings imputed to them, and that redress ought in such cases to be given. He said, the value of every story depends on its being true a story is a picture either of an individual or of human nature in general if it be false it is a picture of nothing for instance suppose a man should tell that johnson before setting out for italy as he had to cross the alps sat down to make himself wings this many people would believe but it would be a picture of nothing. Blank, 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 naming a worthy friend of ours, footnote. The number of the asterisks, taken with the term worthy friend, renders it almost certain that Langton was meant. The story might, however, have been told of Reynolds, for he wrote of Johnson, truth, whether in great or little matters, he held sacred, from the violation of truth, he said, in great things, your character or your interest was affected. In lesser things, your pleasure is equally destroyed. I remember on his relating some incidents, I added something to his relation, which I supposed might likewise have happened. It would have been a better story, says he, if it had been so, but it was not. Taylor's Reynolds. Mrs. Piozzi records anecdotes. A story, 
says Johnson, is a specimen of human manners, and derives its sole value from its truth. When foot has told me something, I dismiss it from my mind like a passing shadow. When Reynolds tells me something, I consider myself as possessed of an idea the more. End of footnote. Naming a worthy friend of ours, he used to think a story a story, till I showed him that truth was essential to it. Footnote. Boswell felt this when, more than eight years earlier, he wrote, As I have related Paoli's remarkable sayings, I declare upon honour that I have neither added nor diminished. Nay, so scrupulous have I been that I would not make the smallest variation, even when my friends thought it would be an improvement. I know with how much pleasure we read what is perfectly authentic. Boswell's Corsica, end of footnote. I observed that Foote entertained us with stories which were not true, but that indeed it was properly not as narratives that Foote's stories pleased us, but as collections of ludicrous images. Johnson, Foote is quite impartial, for he tells lies of everybody. The importance of strict and scrupulous veracity cannot be too often inculcated Johnson was known to be so rigidly attentive to it that even in his common conversation the slightest circumstance was mentioned with exact precision. Footnote. In his Life of Brown, Works, Volume 6, page 478, he said of innocent frauds, but no fraud is innocent. For the confidence which makes the happiness of society is in some degree diminished by every man whose practice is at variance with his words. Mr. Tyers, writes Murphy, Life, page 146, observed that Dr. Johnson always talked as if he was talking upon oath. Compared with Johnson's strictness, Rousseau's laxity is striking. After describing Ces gens qu'on appelle vrais de le monde, he continues, l'homme que j'appelle vrai fait tout le contraire. En chose parfaitement indifférente, la vérité que l'autre respecte si fort le touche faut peu. Et il ne se fera guère de scrupules d'amuser une compagnie par des faits qu'on trouvait, dont il ne résout aucun jugement injuste ni pour ni contre, qui ce soit vivant ou mort. Les rêveries quatrième promenade in footnote. The knowledge of his having such a principle and habit made his friends have a perfect reliance on the truth of everything that he told. However, it might have been doubted if told by many others. As an instance of this, I may mention an odd incident which he related as having happened to him one night in Fleet Street. A gentlewoman, said he, begged I would give her my arm to assist her in crossing the street, which I accordingly did, upon which she offered me a shilling, supposing me to be the watchman. I perceived that she was somewhat in liquor. 
this if told by most people would have been thought an invention when told by johnson it was believed by his friends as much as if they had seen what passed we landed at the temple stairs where we parted i found him in the evening in mrs williams's room we talked of religious orders he said it is as unreasonable for a man to go into a carthusian convent for fear of being immoral as for a man to cut off his hands for fear he should steal there is indeed great resolution in the immediate act of dismembering himself when that is once done he has no longer any merit for though it is out of his power to steal yet he may all his life be a thief in his heart so when a man has once become a carthusian he is obliged to continue so whether he chooses it or not their silence too is absurd we read in the gospel of the apostles being sent to preach but not to hold their tongues all severity that does not tend to increase good or prevent evil is idle i said to the lady abbess of a convent footnote no doubt mrs fermor and a footnote madam you are here not for the love of virtue but the fear of vice she said she should remember this as long as she lived i thought it hard to give her this view of her situation when she could not help it and indeed i wondered at the whole of what he now said because both in his rambler and idler footnote rambler number one hundred and ten idler number fifty two and a footnote he treats religious austerities with much solemnity of respect finding him still persevering in his abstinence from wine i ventured to speak to him of it johnson sir i have no objection to a man's drinking wine if he can do it with moderation i found myself apt to go to excess in it and therefore after having been for some time without it on account of illness i thought it better not to return to it every man is to judge for himself according to the effects which he experiences one of the fathers tells us he found fasting made him so peevish that he did not practice it Footnote. three weeks later at his usual fast before easter johnson recorded i felt myself very much disordered by emptiness and called for tea with peevish and impatient eagerness present meditations page one four seven in the footnote though he often enlarged upon the evil of intoxication footnote, of the use of spirituous liquors he wrote works volume six page twenty six the mischiefs arising on every side from this compendious mode of drunkenness are enormous and insupportable equally to be found among the great and the mean filling palaces with disquiet and distraction harder to be borne as it cannot be mentioned and overwhelming multitudes with incurable diseases and unpitied poverty 
yet he found an excuse for drunkenness which few men but he could have found stockdale memoirs says that he heard mrs williams wonder what pleasure men can take in making beasts of themselves i wonder madam replied johnson that you have not penetration enough to see the strong inducement to the success for he who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man End footnote. he was by no means harsh and unforgiving to those who indulged in occasional excess in wine one of his friends footnote very likely boswell in seventeen seventy seven under a yew tree he promised Temple to be sober. On August the 12th, 1775, he wrote, By promise under the solemn yew I have observed wonderfully, having never infringed it till the other day, a very jovial company of us dined at a tavern, and I unwearingly exceeded my bottle of old hock. And having once broke over the pail, I run wild, but I did not get drunk. I was, however, intoxicated and very ill next day. Letters of Boswell. During his present visit to London, he wrote, My promise under the solemn yew was not religiously kept, because a little wine hurried me on too much. The general, in square brackets, Paoli, has taken my word of honour that I shall not taste fermented liquor for a year that I may recover sobriety. I have kept this promise now about three weeks. I was really growing a drunkard. Ibid. In 1778 he was for a short time a water drinker. His intemperance grew upon him, and at last carried him off. On December the 4th, 1790, he wrote to Malone, Court they took my word and honour that till March the first my allowance of wine per diem should not exceed four good glasses at dinner and a pint after it. And this I have kept, though I have dined with Jack Wilkes, etc. On March the eighth, seventeen ninety one, he wrote Your friendly admonition as to excess in wine has been too often applicable. As I am now free from my restriction to Courtenay, I shall be much upon my guard, for to tell the truth, I did go too deep the day before yesterday. Croker's Boswell, end of footnote. One of his friends, I will remember, came to sup at a tavern with him and some other gentlemen, and too plainly discovered that he had drunk too much at dinner when one who loved mischief, thinking to produce a severe censure, asked Johnson a few days afterwards, Well, sir, what did your friend say to you as an apology for being in such a situation? Johnson answered, Sir, he said all that a man should say. He said he was sorry for it. I heard him once give a very judicious practical advice upon this subject. A man who has been drinking wine at all freely should never go into a new company. With those who have partaken of wine with him, he may be pretty well in unison, 
but he will probably be offensive or appear ridiculous to other people. He allowed very great influence to education. I do not deny, sir, but there is some original difference in minds, but it is nothing in comparison of what is formed by education. We may instance the science of numbers, which all minds are equally capable of attaining. Footnote. Mathematics are perhaps too much studied at our universities. This seems a science to which the meanest intellects are equal. I forget who it is that says, All men might understand mathematics if they would. Goldsmith's present state of polite learning. End of footnote. Yet we find a prodigious difference in the powers of different men in that respect after they have grown up, because their minds have been more or less exercised in it. And I think the same cause will explain the difference of excellence in other things, gradations, admitting always some difference in the first principles. Footnote. No, sir, he once said, people are not born with a particular genius for particular employments or studies, for it would be like saying that a man could see a great way east, but could not west. It is good sense, applied with diligence to what was at first a mere accident, and which, by great application, grew to be called by the generality of mankind a particular genius. Miss Reynolds's Recollections Crocus Boswell Perhaps this is Miss Reynolds' recollection of the following in Boswell's Hebrides, August the 15th, 1773. Johnson I could as easily apply to law as to tragic poetry. Boswell Yet, sir, you did apply to tragic poetry, not to law. Johnson Because, sir, I had not money to study law. So the man who has vigour may walk to the east just as well as to the west, if he happens to turn his head that way. The true genius, he wrote, works volume 7, page 1, is a mind of large general powers accidentally determined to some particular direction. Reynolds held the same doctrine, having got it, no doubt, from Johnson. He held that the superiority attainable in any pursuit, whatever, does not originate in an innate propensity of the mind to that pursuit in particular, but depends on the general strength of the intellect, and on the intense and constant application of that strength to a specific purpose. He regarded ambition as the cause of eminence, but accident as pointing out the means. Northcote's Reynolds. Porson insisted that all men are born with abilities nearly equal. Anyone, he would say, might become quite as good a critic as I am, if he would only take the trouble to make himself so. I have made myself what I am by intense labour. Rogers's Table Talk. Hume maintained the opposite. This forenoon, wrote Boswell on June the 19th, 1775, Mr. Hume came in. He did not say much, 
I only remember his remark that characters depend more on original formation than on the way we are educated. For, said he, princes are educated uniformly, and yet how different are they? How different was James the Second from Charles the Second? Letters of Boswell. Boswell recorded two years earlier, Hebrides, September the 16th. Dr. Johnson denied that any child was better than another, but by difference of instruction, though in consequence of greater attention being paid to instruction by one child than another, and of a variety of imperceptible causes, such as instruction being counteracted by servants, a notion was conceived that of two children equally well educated, one was naturally much worse than another. End of footnote. This is a difficult subject, but it is best to hope that diligence may do a great deal. We are sure of what it can do in increasing our mechanical force and dexterity. I again visited him on Monday. He took occasion to enlarge, as he often did, upon the wretchedness of a sea life. A ship is worse than a jail. There is in a jail better air, better company, better conveniency of every kind. And a ship has the additional disadvantage of being in danger. When men come to like a sea life, they are not fit to live on land. Footnote. The grossness of naval men is shown in Captain Mirvan in Miss Burney's Evelina. In her diary she records, The more I see of sea captains, the less reason I have to be ashamed of Captain Mirvan, for they have all so irresistible a propensity to wanton mischief to roasting bows and detesting old women, that I quite rejoice I showed the book to no one ere printed, lest I should have been prevailed upon to soften his character. End of footnote. Then, said I, it would be cruel in a father to breed his son to the sea? Johnson. It would be cruel in a father who thinks as I do, Men go to sea before they know the unhappiness of that way of life, and when they have come to know it, they cannot escape from it, because it is then too late to choose another profession. As indeed is generally the case with men when they have once engaged in any particular way of life. End of section 60